0: Let's begin this evening, and uh, as you make your way to your seat, we'll start with a word of prayer tonight. If you um, need a lesson sheet tonight, those are back at the Welcome Center. If you made it in without one, you're welcome to grab one while we're singing, or uh, we can get one to you. Uh, If you're watching online tonight, your lesson notes are online. If you go to the website and go to um, the Connect page and choose today's sermon notes, you'll see those. Uh, listed there as well. And I know we've had a number of people text saying they're going to be watching online this evening. We kind of have had a rotation of people that were out the last few weeks with illness and they've rotated back in and we have some that have rotated out. And so uh, if you're watching on home at home this evening, we hope that you uh, feel better and a number of people that we're going to be praying for in just a little while. Uh, If you would uh, take that lesson sheet, we'll have it to be ready with that in a few minutes. I'm going to read a read you a note and one announcement before I forget, and then we'll sing tonight as we begin. Uh, first of all, let me read this note. It says, Landmark Baptist Church, thanks for your generosity over the last several months during Grace's illness and passing. We appreciate the many cards, flowers, food, and meals that were sent for her celebration of life service. It says, your prayers, phone calls, text messages were a great source of encouragement to each of us during these difficult times. God bless you all. And it's signed, Henry Dowdy and her... His daughter, Meredith Johnson, we're continuing to pray for the Dowdy family <clears throat> in these next few days, of course, and months uh, in the upcoming days, seek to be an encouragement to them and their family. And then uh, two announcements, if you would, uh, one is for our ladies' meeting coming up the end of the month, January 26th at 6.30, there's a, a sign-up sheet at the Welcome Center, uh, and that is going to be a game night for the ladies down in the gym. And it says you're welcome to bring a favorite board game or card game or others will be provided that evening. I think there will be some pickleball courts set up as well, if I've understood that right. And so if you want to play pickleball or come laugh at those that do, uh, then that next ladies' meeting is going to be uh, for you. That's coming up. and There's a sign-up sheet, and it includes some sign-up for volunteering for help set up and then bringing food as well that evening. And then coming up next week, uh, next Thursday, on um, the 19th, we're having our uh, church prayer vigil, or day of prayer, and uh, from 7 in the morning that morning into, through uh, the evening, and we'll have a schedule sort of listed. And on the hour, each hour, we start a time of prayer here in the auditorium, and uh, we encourage you to come, whether it's before work or after, if you can come during the day as a family, as a couple, or come with friends, and uh, we're taking prayer requests for that. <clears throat> These would be Ranging from anything, the point is to be able to pray over a number of things that are burdening or praise for our church body over the next uh, few weeks as we begin the year. And so whether it's something you would typically put on the prayer list or if it's a job situation, a family situation, or something you'd like us to pray for, uh, there are prayer cards, little prayer cards you can fill out that are at the Welcome Center as well. You can fill that out, drop it in the offering box at the back. Uh, near the foyer and we'll have those cards out and uh, you can submit them online if you'd like in the prayers part of our website or email them to myself or uh, to the office either one and we'll have those requests out and they'll be prayed over throughout that day and so uh, we encourage you to come and be a part of that and uh, if you're out of town or you can't come that day we're asking each of our members to commit an hour of prayer toward our church and to our church ministries on that particular day All right, let's open the word of prayer tonight, and uh, we'll sing a few songs, and then for our Bible study portion this evening, back in the book of Esther, and uh, excited to start the book last week, and it's going to feel like we stutter stepped, because we're going to go back a little bit before we go forward this week. Lord, we thank you for your mercy to us, and the grace that you give and bestow on our lives should overwhelm us, and though we are not always uh, conscious of it, or Uh, Pay attention to it. We are thankful for its ever-present presence in our lives and the fact that it it holds us and carries us each day. And so we ask that tonight, as we study the book of Esther, that you would help us to see your grace and your sovereign power and plan, your ruling and your will in even the smallest circumstances of our lives and even the negative circumstances of our lives, that you rule and reign, and that one day you will redeem all bad and turn it into good for the lives of those that are your people and in us as believers and Christians. And so we ask that tonight you'd encourage us with that. uh, Some that are unable to be here tonight and some that are here and facing challenges throughout the rest of the week, we pray that uh, this moment of the week, that we set aside time to pray and to study your word would point our eyes toward you, that you would center us here in the middle of our week on your mercy, on your person, and who you are as our God and our relationship to you. I pray that you'd encourage us tonight just by being together, uh, your people belonging to one another and committing themselves to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 as you're seated tonight, if you would, take your Bible and open to the book of Esther once again this week, and um, began our study in the book of Esther last week, and we just sort of did an introduction to the book, and really tried to set our minds in the right direction, and so tonight is sort of, however you would want to describe it, I guess you could call it introduction part B, Um, it's not, we're going to get a little further than just introduction, but Last week, and you have your note section there that we mentioned last week, uh, some things about the time, the place that Esther is set, some of the setting and the background of it, but more than just trying to give an introduction of what's happening, who wrote it, who's reading it, uh, we went over those things, but more than that, and maybe even a little more so than with other portions of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, we kind of laid the groundwork of why this book is so important. Why should we study it, and why should we know it, why should we find, and how can we find comfort in it? You said one of the most, we mentioned last week, that one of the most glaring, and you read any sort of commentary or study book or or any writing on the book of Esther, most of them will point it out fairly quickly, that in the book of Esther, there is no direct mention of God by name. Uh, there are no uh, mentions of God's law, really, by name, except for a heathen that mentions uh, the people of God following different laws. That's really all that he mentions. Uh, there is no uh, there there is no great uh, declaration of faith by any of the primary characters or people that are mentioned in the Book of Esther. There is no great act. There is no supernatural feet, and, and we know, and we're going to see that it's miraculous what God does in the lives of these people, but I mean, there's nothing miraculous in the sense of there is no physical anomaly, there is no, uh, there is no evidence in nature that God is doing a great miracle here in this book, and so why do we study it? We compared it for a couple of minutes last week with the book of Daniel, and that it is quite, <clears throat> it is a parallel opposite of the book of Daniel in which from the very first verse of the book of Daniel we have, here are God's people carried away captive, but it's under God's control. This was God's doing. That's what Daniel 1.1 says, that he gave his people into this situation, into this issue. And then right away you have this young man who is God's servant, who is committed to God, who though he is taken captive lives his faith out very outwardly to those that are even in authority over him and his friends, and they are ultimately very committed to the Lord, and we don't see that in the book of Esther. It doesn't say that God is the one doing this. It doesn't say it outright, right away. Esther, it says, and Mordecai actually kind of in a way hid their faith that They hid the faith from the king and those that were around them. We know that if you study the timeline, that Esther even had been queen, married for five years to the king, and he didn't really know anything about her people or faith or religious background, if you would. He knew nothing of that. He knew nothing of her ancestry or her heritage, and so it's sort of kept quiet. In Daniel, we have these great big visions and dreams and these flashes of brilliance that God brings into their life, and in Esther. You don't have that either. In Daniel, you have God directly telling some of these servants, here is what you should do, and here is exactly what you should say. In Esther, specifically in chapter 4, you have these uh, protagonists, if you would call them that, the people of God, Esther and Mordecai, and they are sort of just left to try to figure it out on their own. In fact, Mordecai says it almost questioning. We have those two valiant statements that we always lift up, in which Mordecai says, for such a time as this. And Esther says, if I perish, I perish. But if you read that, Mordecai actually says that statement in a question. He says, who knows if you were actually born for this or not, but maybe you could help spare people by acting out this way. God doesn't say, do this, and just audibly you have this voice. So why are we going to find encouragement in the book of Esther? Because there are moments like in Daniel... Where God's working in our lives is so evident and so mighty and it is so obvious and it encourages us. And though there may be danger, there's also boldness. But there are moments also in our lives in which God seems absent, in which God is not mentioned, in which His working is not always brilliantly evident. But the story or the theme of the story that we find in Esther is the same as the theme of the story we find in Daniel is that God is ultimately in control. In Daniel, we studied that uh, last year, sometime we walked through the book of Daniel, and verse by verse we found God is sovereign, and He is the real King of all things. All the nations and all the kingdoms, all the empires are under His reign and rule. And the the theme of the story we find in Esther is exactly the same. And yet the evidence is very different. And so in moments of our lives where God we feel or perceive that God is absent, he is actually very present and very much in control. And so tonight as we walk through the setting of the scene, we mentioned last week that the timeline of Esther, the pace of Esther, it varies throughout the book. In the first couple chapters, we're going to cover the span of at least four years. And we know that from the two time periods of his reign that are mentioned in chapter one, verse three is in the Third year of his reign by chapter 2 verse 16. He's in the seventh year of his reign. So four years pass in the first couple chapters, actually a little bit more than that pass in the first couple chapters. And so if you just read through it and just blaze through it quickly, it almost reads as events just happen in succession one day after the next. But in actuality, God's people here are living day after day, month after month, year after year, In the environment and the circumstances that we're about to describe, this wasn't just happened all of a sudden. And so as we study and we look through, we kind of compare it to a a movie in which sometimes it can progress, or a book or a story in which progresses quickly, and then there's other moments where it kind of goes into slow motion. And we're going to see that a little bit tonight. We're going to see it speed quickly, but then it also is going to slow down. And so we're going to look at the bulk of these two chapters, but what is happening here, it's important to note. That in the first two chapters, and we said this last week about how we're going to handle the book of Esther. And one of the things that we said that we have to concentrate on doing is not of our own selves moralizing the book of Esther. Meaning that we're going to take the people that we find in it and say Ahasuerus was bad. We don't be like him. (laughs) We don't act like him. And, And then you have Haman. He was bad. We're not supposed to be like him either. Then you have Esther and Mordecai. They were brave. They did things God used them. We're supposed to be like them. We're going to see even some tonight that that is not what the writer and it's not what God calls us to do or find in this book. It is pointing us to him, not the people. In fact, that's one of the themes of the book of Esther, is that God works in spite of the weaknesses of his own people and should encourage us. So as we walk through tonight, this is a big portion of Scripture. If you're here much or often, you know this is a lot bigger portion or chunk than we would typically take. It doesn't mean it's going to be much longer this evening, but we're going to take a little bit bigger portion because of the need to read this. Sometimes we said like last week, you can zoom in so much on the art. If you stand in the museum, you can stand this close to the art and it looks like brown brushstrokes. And that's what we would think of. But if you step back, you can kind of see the whole picture. And you can walk through and see the beauty of it. And that's what we're going to try to do this evening. Because Esther 1 and 2 are really, they don't, they're, they're not really prominent in the storyline. They set the background for how God is going to deliver his people. And we're going to see that. Now, you could argue and say, well, this is a big event. Yes, it is. But while it is happening, it doesn't seem that way. So we're going to cover a pretty good chunk tonight. We're going to read the bulk of Esther chapter. One and two. I want you to follow along with me. We'll try to read it in a way that um, that that draws our attention to what is important tonight. And then we're going to walk through. And you notice your notes; a lot of it is filled in this evening. There's a lot of text, a lot of uh, explanation there. And we're going to really just look tonight at setting the scene for what's going to happen in the coming chapters and what we see. In fact, last week we mainly focused on verses one through nine to sort of set the kingdom. We're not going to reread that this evening. We're going to start in verse 10. We're going to go back and mention some things in verses 1 through 9 in just a little while. But look if you would in verse number 10. And let's read God's word together. It says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. Now remember, he's held his 180-day feast, and then that wasn't enough. So he also holds another seven-day feast for all the people that work within his palace and those that are there around him in the city. And so on the seventh day of that feast, <coughs> when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, now these are awesome names. I don't suggest, I would much highly suggest a child naming website over this particular list of names. But here we have them. Mehuman, Biztha, Harbena, Bigtha, Abbuktha, Zethar, and Carcass. That's my favorite. The seven chamberlains that served in the in the presence of Hazarus the king. And just a side note, There is nothing definitive on this, but Ahasuerus, the name Ahasuerus, that's probably the Jewish name for King Xerxes. And the pronunciation that they would have used, it means the king or the lion king, sort of is how it would be described as valiance. But the way that the word would have been pronounced, and there's a lot of people that say this in some ancient Hebrew humor here, they would have pronounced it very closely to a word that meant king headache. And I think that that's probably why they particularly chose that name for him. Verse 11, <clears throat> to bring Vashti the queen before the king with, ro- with the crown royal to show the people and the princes of her, of her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And the next unto him was, in another great list of names here, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marsana, and Mikunin, Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face and which sat the first in the kingdom. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to the law? Because she hath not performed the commandment of King Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And Mimikin answered before the king and the princes Vashti, the queen, hath, done no ro- hath not done wrong, not only, excuse me, not, <laughs> not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. And it almost gets humorous here, his explanation. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported. The King Hazarus commanded Vashti the queen be brought before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen. Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. And so basically these princes and rulers say, we don't want our wives to treat us the way your wife has treated you. And so we want, need to come down on this with firm law, verse 19. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it, shall not be, al- that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before the king, before king Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. Now, I don't know about you ladies, but if you hear, and we're going to hear some more in chapter number two, the description of Ahasuerus, being told that you can no longer go around this man does not sound like the strongest of punishments, actually sounds like a reward, but they're also going to take with it the queen's royalty and her place and position. Verse 20, when the king's decree, which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to Great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mimikin. Now, I'll just stop here and say for a moment, this seems like the words and the minds of very simple men, foolish men. And notice, if you would, verse 22. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house and that it should be published according to the language of every people. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, meaning he calmed down, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Oops, he says. Then said the king's servants that minister unto him, let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, <clears throat> unto the custody of Haggai, or to be called Haggai later, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them, and let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. You notice how he's being manipulated by those that are under him. Now, in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, not to be confusing, this is not saying that Mordecai was carried away. It's saying that those that he was the son of were carried away. Mordecai is actually a fourth-generation exile. His family has been now in exile for four generations. Notice verse 7. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful. whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. It makes it very clear what their relationship was like. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also into the king's house to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her things for purification with such things as belonged to her and seven maidens, which were meat to be given uh, her out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked, the word for walk there literally means paced back and forth every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Now, when every maid's turn was come to go into, the, into King Hazarus after that she had been 12 months according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purification accomplished to wit, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors and with other things for the purifying of the women. Then thus came every maiden unto the king, whatsoever she desired was given, unto, given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women to the custody of Sheshkaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, <clears throat> who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go into the king, she cried nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed, and Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken into King Ahasuerus into his house, royal, in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth. Notice this in the seventh year of his reign. This is four years after his altercation with Vashti. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, notice this, unto all his princes and servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release into the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him or as a child. We'll come back to these last three verses in a few moments, but let's ask God to help us. As we look at this portion of Scripture, difficult to digest, difficult to try to fathom all that's going on in the lives of God's people. Lord, we praise you for your word and we ask you to give us strength and wisdom tonight. Help us to see this rightly, not with our own minds or presuppositions or things that we bring to it, but with what you desire that we know of yourself and how you handle your reign and rule of this world and how you use even evil things to accomplish good. And that ultimately, this is just a small picture of what you will one day do for Eternity, that you will subvert all other evil reign. You will vanquish sin, and you will reign new forever among your people. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name, Amen. I want you to look at night. We we just read a large portion of Scripture, and it's a little different. If you've been with us as we study Matthew on Sunday mornings, you know that for Matthew, we've been in Matthew a number of months now, and we're coming to the end of Matthew chapter 13, starting Matthew chapter 14, in which we are taking a few verses at a time, particularly the teachings of Jesus and the parables of Jesus, and we look at just a, a small section of verses and what it is that God is trying to teach us, and we seek to apply that to our lives. And when we come to Esther, I think it's best that we handle this a little differently because as you read, as I mentioned a few moments ago in the book of Esther, there are no grand doctrinal statements. There are no theological teachings really outlined for us in the book of Esther. It's not a book in which we take and verse by verse, in each verse, we find a lesson that we therefore apply to our lives, but rather we're looking at the whole. We're looking at uh, the events and we're looking at the circumstances, and particularly in these first two chapters as we study them this evening, what we're going to see. And, and, and though we are bound to have our own opinions about the people that are laid out before us, particularly these four we have so far in these events. You have Ahasuerus, you have Vashti, who were the king and queen, originally of Persia at the beginning of the book. And then you have Esther and you have Mordecai. And it's easy to read this portion of Scripture to come to our own opinions about them. In fact, you can go and there's commentaries and books that are written with big character studies on each of these people and it kind of studies and walks through how we should try to be like them or not be like them it kind of supposes some of their opinions or even their motives behind them for instance even the motives of Vashti the queen and why she didn't come when her husband called for her or why she didn't go into the palace and why she didn't go before the other princes and rulers and there's a lot of different things that are made of her motivations but here's the bottom line the book doesn't give us those the writer does not include those it does not tell us why she didn't come it could have been noble reasons it could have been that she herself was tired from the feasting or party it could be any number of things But we don't put on the Scripture what the Scripture does not then give to us. And so what we do as we walk through Esther 1 and 2 this evening is not look at them and assert our own opinions, but rather find what it is that God is trying to display for us. And I think that the most evident thing in these first two chapters are, number one, the circumstance or the broad scope of the empire and what's going on in this kingdom. And then within that... The experience that God's people are having to live intertwined with. I I think that's what is most on display for us. Because it is really listed to us and given to us just in facts. Like I said, we can come to our own assertions and opinions, but it's very difficult to do that from this particular portion of Scripture because there is almost nothing given to us about the heart or the minds of these people. Almost nothing. It is just factual. Here is what happened. And so tonight, let's look at it very quickly. Let's look first at the empire, and then second at God's people. And it's going to feel like we are sprinting through this, and that is going to be so. And then we're going to slow down a few places here and there. Some things that we kind of hinted at or alluded to last week. First of all, as we look at the empire, these first nine verses of the chapter tell us a little bit about the Persian empire itself. It says, number one, or letter A there, that culturally... This circumstance was unavoidable. It was where God's people lived, and there was no choice, and there was no place for them to hide. They could not run. The the context, for context, last week we put a a lot of things up on the screen. We put a a map of the Persian Empire, and we put it kind of overlaid over a Google Maps image of that area of the world, and how big this empire was. I wrote down the modern-day countries that this empire would have covered, uh, the portions of northwestern India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Turkey, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and North Sudan were all covered. And, of course, the portion of modern-day Israel, Palestine, and some portions there in the Middle East, it would have covered all of that expanse. And in a world in which most common people traveled by foot, there was nowhere they were going to go. They couldn't run, they couldn't hide. The expanse of this kingdom meant this is where God's people have to live. Now, there's, there's already been a small remnant of people that have left Susa or that have left portions of Persia and Babylon and gone back to Jerusalem, just a few thousand. But a lot of that was probably built on, built on their opportunity to do so and the ability to do so. It was a huge trip and trek. And and it doesn't really tell us here why Mordecai hadn't gone back. We know that he had a position. He was an official probably within the government. But regardless, even if they had gone back to Jerusalem, they would not have been able to escape the reach of the authority of this man and this kingdom. It's where God's people had to live in that moment in time. It was seemingly an invincible kingdom. You see that described in chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. It talks about how broad the the, the kingdom was, but then in uh, verse number, end of verse number one, it says there was hundred and twenty-seven provinces. It wasn't like he just go into land, conquer it, take things, and be like, "Well, we've conquered that and move on." They set up an intricate system of ruling. That they were in, in detail. He was his fist or his hand was coming down specifically and personally on all of these regions. It, it wasn't just like they lived in an area that if Persia came through, they would lose an attack. It was influencing every part of their daily lives. In fact, there was this uh, direct way of communication. It was sort of like the original Pony Express. They could That's what you see several times, that a, 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 an announcement, if you would, or a law was sent out, and very rapidly it would spread throughout most of the known world at that time, how quickly they could do it. It seemed invincible to the people that were living Within it, There was all these priests and all these princes and you see that their laws did not change. That was like law number one of the Medes and the Persians is that law number one is that none of the other laws are allowed to be changed. That's just the way that it worked. He he throws this great feast and even in doing so he plans to attack and he's planning war and God's people just can't get out of it. In fact, even where they're living, if you would notice in verse, you see it mentioned several times in Chapter 1 and chapter 2 where it says the palace at Shushan or the king's palace. And it's the city of Susa. But look if you would very quickly at chapter 3 verse 15. And notice the, the difference that is noted in chapter 3 verse 15. It says, Now the turn oh, excuse me, verse, chapter 3 verse 15. The post went out being hastened by the king's commandment and the decree was given in Shushan. Notice this, in Shushan the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But notice this. But the city Shushan was perplexed. Notice it differentiates. There's Shushan, the palace, meaning the fortress. The word literally means like the citadel of Susa. And then there's the city. So even where the king is and the government, and the princes and the feasts, not only is it fortified within the city, it's sort of its own fortress. Now, we don't really have this in America in modern day, the, maybe the closest Ex- uh, comparison of this would be like the Kremlin in Russia. So you have Russia, and you have the big city, but then within the city, you have this own fortified city itself, where all the government seats and heads. It'd be like if you went to Washington and uh, the and Congress and the Capitol and the White House and the Pentagon and the FBI and certain and that all of those government heads were all in a fortified one area. In our capital, they're all sort of spread out. But even within Susa, there was this fortified city if you would where the king was unreachable they could not be touched it felt like they could not be beaten Notice that visibly it's impressive. You see, I have in chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. We won't walk all the way back through there, but there's a a very short but elaborate description of what it was like. Very different. You see, you're, you're, you're picturing things of white and green and blue and hanging cords of fine linen, couches of gold and beds of gold and silver and rings and pillars. And you say, well, that sounds like a great place. There were not that many places like this in the world at that time. Today, you can go to any major city and spend the night in thirty five star different five-star hotels that are elaborately decorated. In that day, most of the world was not like this. It was impressive. It, it was something that left people wanting more of it or to desire it or to al- align themselves with it. And that's the next. You have it was deceivingly desirable. He, he brings in other rulers. He, he kind of plies them along. He gives them this false freedom and look, if you would, and Verse number 8, he allows them to drink. And notice it says the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so the king had appointed the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. That was different. They had all these weird formalities. If you've seen some old kind of Victorian style or old kingdom, ancient kingdom style feasts or weddings described and different things, it was like you had the main ruler. And people could only do what the main ruler was eating. So if he was eating, you could eat. If he took a sip, you could take a sip. If he stood, you could stand. And when he left, you had to leave. But this is a little different. He's throwing this mighty feast, 180 days. Everyone's celebrating. He's showing them the beauty of his kingdom. Look at what I have. And he's even giving them this freedom, saying, do what you want. And yet, verse number 9, notice, also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house which belonged to King Hazarus. And then in verses 10 and 11, all of a sudden, this man who is in control of everything, the whole world, there's no limit to his power except for one person that he calls his wife. And the man who has the greatest power in all the world seemingly has no control over the thing that is supposed to be closest to him, over the, the, the relationship that is supposed to be most personal. He has no control of it. So it's deceivingly desirable. But notice it's arbitrarily dangerous, meaning it's just on his whim. It's whatever he decides. I don't think that Ahasuerus woke up that morning thinking, I'm going to banish my wife by this evening. She'll never be allowed to come into my presence again. That's probably not how he woke up. But he's so flamboyant. He's so ill-tempered. He is prideful. Everything that has risen up about him in his glory, as he would say it, he thinks he's above all. And notice even how he treats his wife. The ill way. We kind of picture later in Esther that Esther marries this king and this little orphan girl becomes the queen and it's this magical romantic thing. The man was awful. And we're going to see it as we keep going. I don't think that he changed who he was between chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 and when he marries Esther. This is the kind of person that Esther, one of God's people, is brought into this required marriage with. Notice what he says in verse 11. He said to bring Vashi the, qu- the queen, before the king and bring your crown, notice, to show the people and the princes her beauty. He- he's going to display her like a show, just like his beds and just like his pillars and his columns and his treasure. Oh, yeah, yeah, I have another one, he says. Bring her. And she refuses. And so all of a sudden, it did not matter where she had risen to in this empire. When she stood against it, it turned against her, and it was volatile. And she loses her position, her power, her authority. The king is very angry, and on one man's decision, her life completely changes. And so you see some of these same things in our own world, don't we? We see that culturally, that we live in a world where there are certain aspects of where we live. It is unavoidable. You can't run off. We're not commanded to run off and... Start some sort of monastery somewhere and live on our own apart. We live in the world, and it seems invincible at times, doesn't it? That it controls any and every aspect of our lives, and that it seems desirable. Like there are some good things about it. I don't know what God is so hard on the world. There's some things in the world that are actually pretty cool. There's some things that are pretty good, and yet we also find it's a volatilely dangerous place. On the whim and the suggestion and the opinion of just a few people. But ultimately, we see that it's laughable. And we see that in verses 12 through 22. We won't go back and read it all again, but we'll just summarize it. There's this almost entertaining aspect to it. The king calls in his rulers and he says, um, what do I do? There's no place in the law that says when I call the queen in and the queen doesn't obey, what do I do? And then these great princes that they that, that know the law, they fake concern i want you to notice they're they're, they have this and you may hear this word even some today they have this false outrage they are outraged that the king has been offended so someone disobeyed the king's law but in actuality they reveal their hearts what they don't want is someone doing the same thing to them it really they have no actual concern for justice They have no actual concern for what's actually going to happen to Vashi, And they have no actual concern that the law be followed. Their primary concern is what happens to them. How does this affect me? Do you see that in the world today? That people have sometimes this false rage against something and we want the letter of the law when we want the letter of the law. But we also want mercy when we we want mercy. And we want the letter of the law on others when it means that it's going to, It'll affect my life. Or we try to apply the law in a way that doesn't count because it's hurting me. And you see that displayed. But ultimately, it's laughable because here you have this great, mighty ruler who has no control over the actual hearts of people. He can rule the world, but he has no say in the mind and the heart of his own queen. And the same is true in the world today. That ultimately the authority, that when we look at the world and the rulings of the world, and I'm not just talking about just government, and I'm not just talking about our country, but in the world, the system or the process and what we think has the authority over us and rules over the world, ultimately their control is laughable because they have no actual control over the hearts and minds of people. Only God has that. We must hurry on. Notice the second thing that we're going to look at tonight. The people of God. And we're going to kind of just hint or hit these first couple of points pretty quickly so that we can focus as we close sort of on the circumstance that Esther enters into to sort of set the scene for next week. If you came tonight to see how can I apply this today, you should come back next week. (laughs) Because to get through all of this, we're going to see some things about God's people. Notice in verse number 1 through you have this exploitive power that is displayed over notice this directly over god's people so you have in verses one through four the suggestions of the king's servants and it doesn't tell us who it is or if it's the same people as in chapter one it doesn't tell us but they come and so ahasuerus kind of calms down xerxes calms down he says oh man now i don't have a queen that might look foolish Because, like, the guy that rules the world can't even keep good enough relationship with his wife to keep her around. I need a new queen, he says. This is embarrassing. And so they come up with this elaborate scheme. And we may dismiss it for a moment, but I want to slow down for just a second and look at what it actually is. Because we may dismiss it by just saying, well, that's ancient culture. It's ancient time. That's what they did back then. But in actuality, it's awful and it's wicked. Notice the, the suggestion that they give. Go into all the provinces. And it doesn't say send one. It's not like Miss America. Send one representative from every state. Send one representative from every country. Notice, it says, go out into all the provinces and just find anyone that you can that would be considered beautiful. All the fair young virgins of Susa or from Shushan the palace to the house of the women. Bring them, notice this phrase, into the custody of Haggai. So bring all of these people. You, you wonder sometimes and you look at how You think, how in the world did Solomon have all these relationships with hundreds of different women? He did not have relationships with hundreds of women. He used and abused hundreds of women. And the same circumstance happens in this situation. He uses his authority, calls all of these young ladies in basically entraps them. We won't go into all of it tonight, but even you can study the historical writings of Persia and how they would have done this. They put them aside, sort of in their own little fortified area of the city, and when they put them away, they would give them servants, they would give them maidens, but even the men that worked within them, you could not go into the area that they were unless you were a eunuch because they wanted no one to have any sort of claim on anything that the king claimed. It's awful. He's claiming them like possessions. And so it's affecting the lives, not just of women, but hundreds of men that are taken and placed into this servitude, if you would, this type of slavery that they're entered into. It's an awful situation. They exploit their power. The people of God are living as exiles. And we see that from the description of Mordecai. Notice it says he's a Jew. His name was Mordecai. He's the son of Jair, son of Shimei. The son of kish anybody remember who kish is in scripture he's the father of who saul, saul. So, so indirectly there's probably some gaps there but indirectly mordecai can be traced back to the first king of israel but it does not matter he's in exile he has his whole life he's known nothing but this his life has not been all good with a snug of bad circumstance his whole life has been problematic, and hard, and difficult. He's had to live as an official in a kingdom that doesn't even belong to him. Notice the way that we phrased it, that he identifies with the people and the land of God, and yet he can't live in either or with them. And then they have this tension of identity. Look at verse 7. And we sense this in our day. He brought, he brings up a girl named Hadessa, that is Esther. Even the fact that she has to go by two names. Hadessa was a very obviously jewish name esther would have been a very obviously gentile name or persian name even the fact that she's going or identified by two names speaks to the torn nature of her identity she's having to live in a land that is not her own and in a way pretending to be something that is not her and so it's a it's a situation increasingly gets worse and they become more vulnerable because i want you to notice they make this law bring all the maidens from all over the kingdom. Well, sure, the the people that live in this kingdom or that kingdom or this kingdom, but surely not God's people. Like surely God, surely we're going to read, but God gave a way for that not to happen. Like like Moses to kill every child under a certain age, except Moses was able to escape and he didn't have to live in that. Surely that's about to happen to Esther, right? It doesn't. She faces the same hardship that the rest of the world is facing. And she becomes more and more vulnerable as she does. She doesn't reveal her nationality or her faith. And again, the book doesn't really tell us anything about Esther's or Mordecai's motives as to why they did this. Their spirituality, their willingness, their reluctance is called into question. To try to say that Esther was very faithful to God or apathetic toward God... The book doesn't really tell us either way. It just tells us factually she's spoken of in a passive way. She was taken and put here. Not of her own choice and not of her own will. To to try to assert anything else is, is pointless. It doesn't bring us to anything good. But I want you to notice the circumstance itself was just awful. We alluded to it last week, and we won't do it again much for time's sake tonight. But she's taken in. They bring these women in. They have to stay for 12 months in this little section of the palace. Why would they have to stay there for 12 months? Because they wanted to be sure that none of them were expecting a child so that there wouldn't be any deluding of the king's line and thinking, well, this is the king's child, but it actually wasn't. So they had to stay there for a year with the eunuchs to be sure that if there was a child conceived, it was definitely the emperor's. And so they're set aside. They live in this way, captive, if you would, and then it says that they go in in verse number fourteen, and we say there's there's just no way around. This is the type of circumstances this is. Verse fourteen. Actually, look at verse thirteen. I want you to notice a, a specific word, and notice what's about to happen to Esther. And, and this is going to kind of bring us to a close, not to end on a negative note, but to set the tone for next week. Notice in verse thirteen. Then thus came every what's the word, maiden unto the king. Okay. They're a maiden. Verse 14. In the evening she went in, and the morrow she returned into the what? Second house. So they didn't go back to where they came from. They went to a different house with a different leader, Sheshkaz, the king's chamberlain. Notice this phrase, which kept the what? Concubines. That I mean, it's awful. Oh, these, these young ladies, these girls, who, who have parents, who have dads, who have moms, who have brothers and sisters, who live their lives with dreams are kept for a year, and they go into a man as a maiden, and they come out of subjective wife. It, and Esther is not excluded. It happens to her. And you see that in verse 15. And I even want you to think about this. We picture this glorious splendor. Oh, she went in as an orphan. She came out as the queen. No, she went in as an object. And she came out as the queen of all those other objects. I mean, think about it. Everyone knew the rules to this emperor's game. Everyone knew what the rules were. Everyone. And then Esther's made the queen. How would all of the other concubines, the other wives, have viewed her? Oh, we know how you got that crown. It's awful. And then as it continues on, verse 18 then the king made a great feast, notice this phrase, unto all his princes and servants. He makes a queen. They call it Esther's feast, but it's dedicated to the men that gave him the idea to do it in the first place. It's a horrible, horrible circumstance. You say, we know. We, you have belabored that a little bit this week and a lot last week. Why are you doing this? Why are we talking about this? It even comes to the end of, verse, of chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, big, thin, and Teresh, of those which kept the door were wroth and sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. They're going to assassinate the king. It does not tell us why. Although I do think that it is significant that it's the two men that kept his door. The two men that sat near to this guy most often. Eventually I've had enough. We're going to kill him. Mordecai hears it. What would you do if you were Mordecai? He tells it to Esther. The queen and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. I don't know if I could have done that to the man that did that, to my daughter. An inquisition was made in the matter, and it was found. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. Literally means to be impaled. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. So what you have is this, it seems random, but it's important to the story of the whole And here's what happened in the midst of all that has happened. This is the one hint I think that we have toward the character and nature of Mordecai because Mordecai would have read, like most of the Jews in exile, he would have read Jeremiah's letter to them which says in chapter 29, verse number 5, or I believe it's verse 15, to seek the peace of the city where you're living. He says, you're living in exile. Grow there, follow your God there and seek the peace and welfare of the place that God has put you. There can't be much other excuse that Mordecai would allow this man to keep living and come up with a way, but he does. Esther makes sure to tell the king, it's Mordecai that saved you. However, uncharacteristically, Herodotus, a historian, has told us that the Persian kings were very adamant about rewarding loyalty, and yet Mordecai is not. This would have stood out to anyone reading it at this time. How in the world did he not get a reward for that? Yet. And even though a person didn't notice, God noticed and God uses it. So, where do things stand? I won't let you read the rest of this sort of on your own, but let's summarize. Where do things stand? We see trouble for God's people, discouraging circumstances, ugly, messy situations for the individual. We find hints, though, of this hidden king that we've named our series after. There's two people put in influential places before more trouble arises. A young woman is now the queen of the Persian Empire by no conquest of her own. And an older man has become the unacknowledged savior of the Persian emperor. And all of that will come into play. And yet to this point, none of it is known. And so we're left to question. Now we know what the rest of Esther says. It's not hidden. Hopefully you've read the rest of the book of Esther at some point in your life. We know what the rest of the book is. And so as we read this and we see the details of how God got from this awful place and awful circumstance to the end of the book in which there is reversal and this condemnation of death on his people actually comes to life and rule for them, authority for them. How did he get from one place to the next? It can't be the visibly impressive show of the empire. What we find is that the authority of the world has no power over the human heart. God can foolishly shame even the wise I encourage you tonight, I I told you, we're not going to get to a point of this evening's message where we come to a neat little close and say, and here is how this changes my life today. It's going to leave us hanging and wanting more for next week. But if you would, on the back, at some point, I encourage you as a couple, with friends or with your family, or even as an individual, read through some of those first questions about what we learned tonight and then walk through, how does that make us think? What or who seems very powerful in the world that we live now? And how does reading chapter 1 and 2 affect the way that we think about that? Are there times and moments that we have felt weak and powerless as Christians and as God's people? How can reading the book of Esther help us understand our situation a little more clearly? How does our experience in the world echo the type of world that we live in even now uh, compared to the Persian Empire? The tone of Esther gives us this ability to laugh at the fake power and the empty show of this king and his his kingdom. How then should we view the empty false show of the kingdoms that we live in today? And how does Esther 1 and 2 encourage us to live with hope toward a hidden king and an unseen God that still works out his purposes even today? Big portion of scripture tonight, and we can all take a deep breath and come back next week to see how God, even when he seems absent, is working on behalf of his people, and ultimately one day for an eternal reversal, an eternal rule and reign. Let's close with prayer, and then we'll spend a few moments tonight together in prayer groups and um, as families, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, seal on our hearts your word. We We have read tonight, and I'm sure that different moments of this circumstance and different parts of these events have pushed or touched or even kind of crushed different aspects of different hearts in the room tonight. As we read it, we, we insert ourselves into the events and, and we sense feelings as fathers, as mothers, as even daughters, as sons, as workers, as rulers, as authority, we, we, we sense different injustice and a laughable facade of control. And so we ask you tonight that you'd seal in our hearts the fact that even when we look at the world around us, that exploits authority, that, that leads for personal gain and benefit, that works in, in, in their own behalf with no thought of others, a place where injustice seems rampant, that yet somehow you are still in control. Help us not to grow vulnerably um, uh, angry toward your rule in this world, But, but help us to live and to be encouraged that one day there will be an eternal change And there will never be sin. There will never be evil. And that in the way that you turned this event and story, this rule and reign of wickedness around for your good, that one day you will do it in a way that will leave righteousness reigning forever. And we pray that you'd touch our hearts with that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, take a look at the back there. We're going to spend four or five minutes as we close tonight in prayer. And, um, again, I told you, I warned you these last couple weeks that we would have a lot to cover, and, um, so we would tackle it all in one, at once, but we will start to slow down a little next week. But if you would notice, um, there are some requests from some of our members, a number of requests, and we're praying for the ministries of our church and those that we're seeking to disciple and uh, efforts to grow. I encourage you, if you're not... Weren't here last Sunday night. Um, you can go online and listen. We started a, a new membership class for the whole church. We're going to go through it once, the whole church. But if you're a, a longtime member or a prospective member, someone interested in joining the church, go on and listen to that. And I hope they will be here Sunday evening. And so we're looking to grow and move forward together as a church and um, and, and joining together, belonging to each other. And then we're also praying for some individuals. Uh, we've been praying for Mary Jackson for a few weeks now, and. Uh, mrs watson for a number of months and uh, for her transition there at hanover Healthcare. and then you see um, uh, a few others have been added we're still praying for the upcoming surgery for jeff lewis dad uh, dick lewis uh, patricia Wilmoth sits down here in the front she's having shoulder replacement surgery tomorrow uh kind of came up very quickly but uh, she's having that tomorrow so if you would pray for her recovery Um, It says Mary Klima. It's supposed to say Laurie Klima. This is Mary Martin's daughter, Laurie. Um, She had a cancer diagnosis, began chemo treatment this week. So if you would pray for her. As well as for uh, Rob Atwater, this is Mary Jackson's son who's having surgery. She called in with that request this week as well. I'm praying for her as well. And then Barbara Kennedy who's having uh, foot surgeries of her own. And then her son, who I believe lives with her, he's having some Uh, seizures some other issues and then continue to pray for families of those that have had recent loss a number of um, those in our church that have experienced that and so we're praying for each of them as well as you join there as family or friends sitting together slide over and pray with a friend we won't split into full groups tonight but praying there as a family or a couple let's pray through these share requests or praise even Uh, ask your kids what they can be praying for this week as well and then as we get ready to pray we have uh, Dan and Zacharias, do you have anything we can pray for you these next couple of days specifically? Dan heads up uh, Odex, which is the association that our school is a part of. He represents us downtown, helps try to protect our liberties and um, as a Christian school and so we 're going to be praying for him the next couple of days down at the general Assembly. Anything specific you 'd like us to pray for these next couple of days or strength, and strength and wisdom and uh, he's going he 's going to need it he 's helped us a lot these last couple of years. And uh, we're praying that they'll continue to do that. And we're glad that he's here with us tonight. All right, let's have a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll be dismissed in just a moment.